At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. Well, good morning. My name is Kevin Paberski. I'm uh, the associate pastor here. Really thrilled to be with you today. Came in late last night from the men's retreat. Um, So really want to just encourage you to pray for the rest of the men from our campus, from all over Woodside, traveling back today. Uh, It was a great time. Uh, My time had to be cut short because I'm here, of course. Uh, But it was a really good time. So I just want to encourage you to pray and lift them up as they travel back this morning. But several years ago, I was actually driving up to the men's retreat together with a bunch of guys. I promise this is from a while ago. You'll see why in a moment. But on our trip together, we talked about a lot of different things. Had a great time just, you know, in, a, in the car with the guys, just chatting things up. And I got caught up and got distracted and ended up going a whole lot faster than I should have been going. Yeah, you know where this is going. So I blow right past a county sheriff tucked just out of sight. I don't know about you, like I always wonder, how do they find these spots? They're always like perfectly out of sight. The next 15 minutes of my life felt like the absolute worst. So he comes fast up behind me, sirens going, lights going. I get pulled over and my heart is just pounding in my chest. I mean, in my mind, all these elaborate excuses are, are coming out like, oh, the sun was in my eyes. My, my gauges weren't working. I mean, all of these elaborate things has come in my mind. The guys in my truck, however, oh, they're laughing. They are cracking jokes. The, oh, nice job, Kev. Way to go. So I pull over. The sheriff comes up to my car, and he says, any idea how fast you're going? Yes, officer, 70. It was a 55. Pay no attention to that. He's like, uh, where are you headed? This is where it gets really good. Oh, I'm uh, headed up to a men's retreat with all these guys from my church. (laughs) He goes back to his car. This felt like an eternity to me. Uh, But he comes back and says, hey, how about we slow it down so we get there in one piece? And I said, yes, sir, officer. Yes, sir. You know, not getting what you deserve feels really good, doesn't it? Right? When we do something wrong and we don't get what we deserve, I would shudder to think there's probably not another great feeling like that, maybe just a few. But even despite telling you that story about my own life, when I see someone driving fast, when I see someone driving crazy, I'm the first person to say, they need a ticket. Where's a policeman when you need one? See, I naturally want mercy and forgiveness for myself. But for everybody else, I just want swift justice. Swift justice when they do something wrong, but not just when they do something wrong that may be obvious, wrong according to how I think, wrong according to my own agenda. Clearly, I'm only talking about myself today. See, the truth is, this tension touches every one of us, right? Wanting mercy and forgiveness for ourselves and wanting justice swiftly for everyone else. 
but not so much as the obvious ways in the ways that we want, the way that we think. It touches our lives every single day. And Jesus is the only one who balances mercy and forgiveness and justice perfectly. He's the only one. If I could say it another way, in Jesus, forgiveness and justice exist in perfect harmony. There's no conflict in Jesus like there is in us. But before we see how exactly, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here. Yes, God, you deserve the credit, you deserve the honor and the glory for being over creation, being over our lives, and at the same time, intimately involved in every single one of the details of our lives. And no doubt, God, you have brought us here today. You have made us one body by the blood of your son. But I also know, God, that when we talk about forgiveness and justice, a whole lot things might be spinning in our mind. A whole lot of things might be spinning in our minds even before we heard any of that this morning when we came in here. And so God, I, I know that there's things in our way perhaps to hear from you now, to hear your word. And so God, I pray that you would just, you would part those out from in front of us. Take those and put those aside and give us eyes to see and hear your truth. Eyes to see and hear your glorious word that's been preserved from generation to generation. I'm reminded of what Jesus says, that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. God, we're counting on that in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today is our eighth week. It's hard to believe we're in eight weeks into this series on the Apostles' Creed, a series that we've entitled The Essentials, Why Truth Matters. And I hope you've seen over these seven and now eight weeks that it does matter significantly. And we've been digesting the words of the Apostles' Creed so that we can be clear on the essentials, on the foundations of our faith. And that's really my prayer for all of you, is that you've gotten clarity each and every week as we've progressed in this series. Each and every week that you've gotten clarity about what your faith is built upon. And living in an age of so much information, I think it's so easy to get lost in the overabundance of words. But today, I think it's fitting that we're looking at another short yet powerful phrase from the Apostles' Creed. And so I want to say it together like we've routinely done each and every week. We have it up on the screen for you. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Let's say it again. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Of sins. Man, in affirming that together, we proclaim something very, very personal to each one of us, don't we? And at the same time, it's common to all of us, right? All of us have a foundational need. That need is to be forgiven, as we sung about today. And as we acknowledge that, as we all mouth and, and verbalize those words that were on the screen, there's a gravity to what we just said. Right? There's a weightiness now in the room that we all acknowledge our need to be forgiven. And with Easter still fresh on our minds, all of us may nod in agreement, yes, I know, I, I need forgiveness. But see, the forgiveness you and I have, it's not just a great idea. It's not abstract. It's not just something great to talk about or, or really cool to imagine. It's relational. Right? The, the forgiveness that you have, the forgiveness that I have, it's from God to us. A 
huge thing has taken place by the fact of Jesus dying on the cross, the forgiveness that he's made available to us, that's tremendously significant for your life. And so God wants us to have a forgiveness impact how we live. It does impact our faith. And so we benefit then. Our faith is impacted. It grows by seeing examples of forgiveness, by looking at it intently and seeing it with fresh eyes. And so I want you to turn to John chapter 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8, and we're going to see what forgiveness looks like. John chapter 8. Now, before we read the text, I want to uh, maybe point out something that you might notice. I don't know if your Bible has this, but in the top there, there's a little bracketed sentence. Maybe your Bible has it, maybe it doesn't. But it reads probably something like this or a version like this. as the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. And the whole text here, the whole story that we're going to get into in a moment, might be set off by double brackets. You may even have a footnote in your Bible that suggests other places where this passage could be found. This is a challenge for us today. Right? Some might just pass right over this, not give it another thought. Just be like, eh, whatever. A lot of footnotes, a lot of, a lot of concordance things in the Bible that I don't pay attention to. Okay, fair. Some of you might even be surprised. Like, this might be the first time you're seeing this. So, and you might even be rattled. It might bring maybe some fear and doubt for us. It may cause some of us to ask, can I, can I trust my Bible? And I think critics might even see this as an opportunity to pounce. Aha, Christians, I've got you. Your Bible's not true. It's flawed. It's just like any other ancient writing. It's got mistakes. It's got lots of other things in it that just really poke at its truthfulness. Well, challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. See, the truth is, the situation with this text is, in fact, very, very rare. And what we need to understand today is that many people have given their lives, given decades upon decades to studying the ancient manuscripts of the Bible, in particular the New Testament, but also the Old, to see how and and understand how we can get our printed English translations from, how we have our modern Bibles today. This discipline is called textual criticism. That's a mouthful. I don't expect any of you to know all about it. You shouldn't expect you to know all about it. But I do seek today not to make this an academic lecture, but I want you to have an appreciation for it. People have given their lives so that you can have what you have in your hands and you can trust it. See, the fact is there is no comparison, none whatsoever, between the ancient writings of the manuscripts that give rise to our printed Bibles today and any other ancient writing. It's true. And I want you to hear this because this is really important. The number, the quality, and the accuracy of the manuscripts of the Bible far outweigh any other ancient writing ever. It's true. We could be talking about Aristotle's writings. We could talk about things they use in school like Homer's Iliad and the history of the Trojan War. There's no comparison. None. Not when we're talking about the number of manuscripts from which we get our Bibles, the quality of them, the accuracy. No comparison whatsoever. No other ancient writing can make the claims that the Bible can make. So, you can trust your Bible. You should trust your Bible. But we still have this bracketed sentence, and so I want to address it with a couple 
just brief points. First of all, it's true. It's true. Most of the earliest manuscripts that we have, from our, that we have our New Testament from that they're based on don't include this story. But some that come just after the earliest ones within a matter of a few decades do. All the evidence that we have from the, the manuscripts, from other study, from other apocryphal writings, that means just writings that the Bible might, uh, might base on, time period, history, all of those things, indicates this story was probably not original to John's gospel. When we look at the writing style, the, the phrases, the word usage, all of that better resembles other gospel writers, in particular Luke. And that's one of the places that it's suggested that it could be found. But considering all of the evidence, this is what's most important for us to hear. Scholars widely regard this story as authentic, but out of place. If I could put it another way, it's a true story without a true home. But when we look at this at face value, when we look at this story at face value, we see that just it reads like Jesus. Everything about it looks like Jesus. It's consistent with everything that's written about him in the Gospels. It's consistent with everything we see about Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So let's not delay any longer. Let's look at John chapter 8. We'll be in verses 2 through 11. The text reads, Early in the morning he came again to the temple. That's Jesus, we're saying, as, as far as he. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the, be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is quite a story. This is an amazing story, in fact, and it's an amazing scene right here before our eyes. And so I want to back up a little bit and just kind of recreate this scene for our imaginations because I think it's really important for us to grasp what's going on. Jesus is up early, something he did routinely. He's in the temple, again, something he did often. And he's teaching a crowd of people and he's sitting with them. Don't read so fast that you miss that. See, Jesus sits down with all of us. He slows down to get face to face with you. He gives loving attention to everyone who comes to him. And it's important that we see that because it's a stark contrast between the scribes and the Pharisees and how they enter this scene. They, they come and they just put a woman right in the middle of what Jesus is doing, just kind of demanding and abruptly. Imagine the disruption this is. He's teaching a bunch of people, and this is what happens. See, it was a test. 
It's a trap. We get that from the text, but this is something that they tried often, over and over. Jesus doesn't even respond. He doesn't even respond. Instead, he writes in the ground. So you and I can get lost in the possibilities here, and there's been numerous ink spilled on what he could be writing, but none of that is the point. You know, a few weeks ago, we read in John chapter 1 that when we were talking about Jesus Christ and affirming that part of the Apostles' Creed, that the Apostle sees two different kinds of people in the world. He sees those who receive Jesus and those that reject them. And I think they're right here. They're right here in this text right before us. We've got the scribes and the Pharisees, right? They don't receive Jesus. They're just kind of there. They come with their tests. They kind of use this woman as a prop, and they're demanding They're hostile. They don't love the law. They could care less about the law. How do I know that? Where's the man? See, the law required that both people caught in the act of adultery, they would come and be present. They would be judged together. And yet he's nowhere to be found. See, they hate Jesus. Already right here, they've decided they've rejected him. And yet we have the woman as well. She's caught in the act. You know, based on all of the the understanding of the law, all that it required as far as witnesses and things that had to be accounted for, scholars unanimously look at this story and say, this was probably a setup. Probably a trap altogether. And yet no words from her. No defense. No excuses, no elaborate explanation. No, they tricked me. None of that from her. Which one are you? Which one do you resonate with in this account, this story? I think if I'm honest with you, the truth is, I think we're all caught in the act. We're all just like her. Right? The Bible tells us that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No matter how good of a defense we can make, all of us are sinful. You don't have to know anything about my life, and you can be certain of that. I don't know if I have to know anything about your life, and I can be certain of that of you. We're all sinful. We're also all holding stones in judgment. See, all of us, we look at the sin of others and we say, well, that's worse than mine. And so we rank and we dismiss, even in subtle ways. We're all holding stones over our own thinking of what is righteousness and what's not. No one has any moral high ground. And what we're really seeing here is that forgiveness, it requires the awareness of guilt. My family, we have two dogs that we um, rescued, Lucy and Daisy. They're wonderful dogs, but every single time I come home, doesn't matter if it's me, my wife, my sons, we come in, and, but when I come in the door, it's like, I'm so awesome. Right? I debated whether or not I was going to reenact one of their things, but I, I'll spare you of that visual. Um, but it's like I'm the best thing since sliced bread. Right? Like, I'm so awesome. They admire me. They want to be with me. They, everything about me, they love. Everything. 
But how foolish would I be to take my dog's admiration as proof that I'm wonderful? Right? As proof that I'm great, that I'm awesome. We laugh, but seriously, how aware are we of our daily need for repentance and for forgiveness? How aware? At the start of his ministry, Jesus said this. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I'm going to get a little academic on you, and you'll see why in a moment. But the word for repent there, it's a verb. And it's in the present active tense. That means the action that it's referring to is continuous. So repentance is not only something I did when I first met Jesus. Right? When I first encountered Christ, I come to faith in him, and I repent of my sins. It's not just there. Repentance is something I do over and over and over again as a disciple of Jesus. It's a daily habit of the new life I have in Jesus. And this is precisely why you and I have been given the Holy Spirit as believers, right? To convict us, to keep us aware, to keep us aware of our need, to keep our hearts soft, keep our eyes open, to keep our ears open to his voice leading us, molding us, shaping us more and more into the image of Christ. Each and every day we follow him. So just examine yourself for a moment. Take some stock of your own heart. Is repentance a daily habit for you? Is it your lifestyle? Have you made it your lifestyle? Forgiveness requires the awareness of guilt. Let's go back to our story. Excuse me. Let's go back to our story. Pick it up at verse 7. So Jesus is writing in the ground. And the text tells us in in verse 7, we see the scribes and Pharisees just rudely just keep demanding of Jesus. So Jesus, what do you say? Jesus, we found her in the act of adultery. What do you say? Imagine it, just they're holding stones. Jesus, what do you say? What should we do, Jesus? But see, now we finally hear Jesus speak. And it's an overwhelming answer. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In one short yet powerful sentence, Jesus, he honors the law, confronts the accusers, and he points everyone there to holiness. And then back to the ground to write again. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine this scene? I encourage you, put yourself there. See, all of their schemes, all of their games, the whole trap, just destroyed by one sentence from Jesus. And I think the truth is plain for us to see here. We often overestimate our righteousness and underestimate our sinfulness. Let me say that again. We often overestimate our righteousness and underestimate our sinfulness. And this is the exact and saddening effect of sin that goes unrepented in our life. It hardens this. It hardens our heart. We become demanding with God. We become demanding with others. 
and we can't hear his voice. We can't follow his direction in our life. And Jesus is confronting every single one of us, everyone in his day, everyone now, everyone for all time who consistently have the need to pass judgment without any thought given to ourselves. And I think we see this consistently today. Right? We have people inside the church, we have people outside the church, coming to the church, coming in front of Christians, and demanding that we accept this or we accept that, all because God is love. God is love, and so we should love this person or that person. We should love this or that or do this or that. All in the name of God is love. Look, you can make, you can try and make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. But when you do that, you're left with a lifestyle that contradicts every word of it. This Bible is not given to us on our terms. We don't have the freedom to try to redefine what it says according to what we like. And when that is the case, grace will be conditional. Conditional on agreement or conformity with the way we think. And I don't know if you're paying attention. I really hope that you do, and you are. Jesus is not playing along. He's not interested with grace on our terms. He's not interested in grace according to the way we think it should go. He's not paying attention to them. He's got a higher understanding, a divine understanding of grace that he's given to us and he's giving literally in this story. I mean, what does it say to you that Jesus, fully God, holy and perfect, says to this self-confessed sinner with guilt heavy on her heart? Imagine the crowd is there. This is not one-on-one. This is in front of a mass of people of some kind. She's got guilt heavy on her heart, and he says, neither do I condemn you. Imagine how those words from him, from Jesus, hit her soul. Professor and author Dustin Benge, I think, captures it well when he says this. If our sin is not more heinous to us than the sin we point out in others, reconciliation with God will never be possible. Wow. See, Jesus here, he's restoring holiness. But it's not on the law. It's not on morality alone. It's not on a list of good good deeds or a list of whatever that you and I construct right here. It's on his grace. It's on his amazing, irresistible grace that he's given us. And after Jesus gives his answer, one by one they leave. One by one they give up their game until it's just Jesus and her. See, to Jesus, she's not a prop. She's not a commodity. She's not a a means to an end. He sees her. He receives her at face value. Forgiveness from Jesus removes all condemnation. All of it. My dad's family, the, he grew up on the west side of Detroit. And when I was young, we would visit his childhood, 
child at home, see my cousins, visit with my grandparents. And, um, and as I grew up and as we went there, slowly but surely, a lot of the homes on her block became abandoned. And eventually, they'd be condemned by the city. And as my grandmother got older, the house for her, my grandfather passed before her, and the house just became too much for her. She couldn't handle the home on her own, and so she sold the house. And then it, too, became condemned. See, I think in many ways our, our lives are like these homes. Sin has come into us and corrupted every single thing about us. And in our sin, apart from the work from Christ, we too stand condemned. But this is precisely why Jesus came. If I went around this room right now, all of you could probably recite John 3.16. But I wonder if you remember John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Such a powerful reminder that if you believe in Jesus, that he is God's only son, and trust by faith that his death on the cross is absolutely and utterly sufficient for you to be forgiven of your sin, then a great exchange has taken place for you. A great exchange. You've exchanged your sin for his righteousness. All the condemnation from your sin in your past, your present, in your future, all of that condemnation is gone, completely removed by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. I love how succinctly theologian and pastor A.W. Tozer says it like this, the only sin Jesus ever had was ours. And the only righteousness we can ever have is his. That's so beautiful. Let's go back to the text and see how the story finishes. Look at verse 11, the second half, and look at how Jesus finishes what he says. He says, go, and from now on, sin no more. Don't make the mistake of, of seeing Jesus' compassion here for a free pass on sin. Like it's some kind of, hey, I love you. Everything's great. Go ahead and do whatever you want. Right? God is love, so just live however you want. That's not at all what he's saying here. The text shows no support for blanket condemnation of people just as much as it shows no support for being soft on sin. See, no person can be saved by God and then continue to do what they, as they please. But let me tread very carefully here. Jesus is not commanding a life of sinless perfection. Notice the order of what he says. See, if Jesus said, go and sin no more, and I will not condemn you, where would we be? Where would any of us be? See, we would be hopeless because we still sin. But instead... Jesus calls her, just like he calls you and me, to a new life made possible. A new life made possible by his death and empowered by the spirit that dwells within us. 
See, the forgiveness Jesus gives provides us with the freedom and power to turn from a life that's dead in sin and walk in a new life of holiness in communion with God. See, forgiveness from Jesus, it renews a dead life. Renews a dead life. My sister-in-law, she was diagnosed with leukemia at the age of 20. And uh, the doctors only gave her six months to live. And they said if she ever actually achieved remission, she'd likely only live about 10 years after that. And it turned out that one of her sisters was a match for her, and so she received a bone marrow transplant from her sister. This year, 2023, is 31 years. Past that, yep. Past that medical opinion. You know, I'm reminded of her story that sin is just like cancer. It leads to death. And the power to beat it is not in any of us. And like my sister-in-law, the remedy from her had to come from someone else. When it comes to sin, that someone else is Jesus for all of us. And so I think this is the astonishing beauty of the grace that God's given us in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus saw all of the sin in me. He saw all of the sin in you, all of the sin collectively in all of us, all of the sin of every human being, past, present, and future. He saw it all and still walked straight to the cross. The Bible tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. See, it's only Jesus that forgives sins. It's only Jesus that fundamentally gives us and meets that fundamental need in us that we spoke about when we started. And so as we close, I just wonder how you see yourself. Do you see yourself as a scribe and a Pharisee? Maybe holding a stone. Maybe you see yourself caught in the act. Maybe it's both. For different reasons at different times. Whichever the answer is, you need to see from this story that Jesus receives you. He sees you. He accepts you at at face value. He doesn't condemn you. And when you place your faith in him, when you surrender your life to Jesus and trust him by faith, you can say with confidence, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.